Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, please. The argument through the book of Romans is something like this, that there's a righteousness from God that's being revealed in the Gospel, the good news. And the righteousness comes through faith. It comes through faith because uh, we are all, to a man, uh, without exception, we are all guilty of sin, condemned before God. We're under the power of sin. And every one of us, without exception, will stand before God without excuse, with our mouths shut, with nothing to say in our defense. Uh, We are guilty, powerless, and condemned. And so the only hope is that God would do something to intervene in that hopeless situation. And so what He does is He makes a righteousness available to us apart from our performance, apart from the law. A righteousness that comes through faith in Christ in which He takes the, the sins that are on us and He puts them on Christ, and He takes the righteousness of Christ and gives it to us. And he, Paul calls that justification. Now, if you'll indulge me for a second, I want you to take those hymnals again and turn to 871. This is important, because today the passage we're going to look at is about the consequences of justification. The impact justification has in your life. It's uh, the image to have in mind is when you see a rock impact the water of a pond, you see the ripples form. It's the, the consequences of that rock. Well, justification hits your life and there are ripples that flow from it in your life. That's the impact. And, and Romans 5 is about those ripples, the impact of justification. So you have to understand what justification is. And, and, and this is one of maybe the very best summary of justification uh, for you to remember. Uh, It's worth memorizing. It's page 871 in your hymnals, question 33 at the very bottom. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sin and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us and received by faith alone. So God does something. He acts by free grace, not, not forced, not coerced, not earned. He acts by grace, and He pardons you of your sins because He puts them on Christ, punishes them there, and has nothing against you for your sins. And instead, He gives you or counts to you or credits to you, imputes to you the obedience and righteousness of Christ And therefore, you are accepted by God in His sight as righteous. That's justification. And when our passage begins, therefore, since we have been justified, you know what he's saying. Because you have been accepted as righteous in God's sight, here's the result. That's what our passage is about. Let's pray and ask God for His blessing on our time and His Word today. Our Father in Heaven, Would you bless the reading and study of your word, cause us to be nourished in the faith and to enjoy and to live in and to take hold of all the blessings that are ours because of Jesus, to know that our justification has given us favor with you that will last forever. We pray that you would convince us of it and nourish and feed and grow and strengthen your church for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is God's Word. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were enemies, we were reconciled. So if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. It is completely true and it is utterly trustworthy. When I was in college, I went to a, a, uh, a conference and I remember one of the speakers of the conference, when he was opening his sermon, he gave an introduction to the sermon that I still remember. Now, uh, it was one of those eye-opening, aha, light comes on, the puzzle pieces begin to fit together moments in my life. After all, just think about it. How many sermons, introductions do you remember from 20 years ago? Or I expect that if everything stays the same, you'll be thinking about it 20 years from now. It was a great moment. Here's what he did. He said, what does Christianity promise you? Does Christianity promise you a better relationship with your father? That's, he said that that was part of his testimony. That Christianity, coming into his life and his following Jesus, cleared some of the obstacles between him and his dad and their relationship improved because of his faith and because of his following Jesus. But then he said, does Christianity promise you that? And he said, no, it doesn't. And of course he was right. I want you to imagine someone who's uh, growing up in a Muslim country becomes a convert to Christianity. He, he embraces Jesus, and it likely means the end of his relationship with his parents. It completely and utterly destroys it. Christianity sometimes will give people better relationships with a father, with a family member, with other people, and sometimes it makes them worse. Does Christianity promise you success? At least in some level. Well, certainly some people's testimony might be that as I became a Christian and got involved in a church, I gained a network of people who became a resource to me to encourage me to do things. And, and, and I became a success. Maybe the success is a financial or business success. Maybe it was a success in overcoming an emotional or psychological problem because they had people they could depend upon. So we say... Does Christianity promise that? And the answer is, some people get that. And some people do not. Some people find that Christianity becomes something that keeps them from success. Imagine a person 
who has risen to the tops of his business and his profession. And at the top, he realizes that his company is engaged in something that's a little shady, a little deceitful, and they're making their money partly by cheating their customers, and so he brings it up. And then there's a systematic exclusion of this executive until he's laid off, and the only job he can find is in a new field, making far less money and unable to pay his bills except barely sometimes, or maybe not at all. You, you can certainly see that, and Christianity cost him his success rather than gave it to him. Does Christianity promise you comfort? Well, certainly there are things that are comforting about Christianity. The Bible says that you don't have to be anxious because you have a Father in Heaven who loves you. And your anxiousness won't do anything. It, will, uh, it won't add an hour to your life. God loves you. It, it, the, the, the Bible tells us over and over again, one of the most frequent commands in the Bible, do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. And so there's a comforting aspect to the Bible, but there's also a discomforting aspect to Christianity too, isn't there? That Don't we find Christianity confronting us, exposing our need and our sin? And so the, the Christian, even when a Christian is living quite well and very faithful to God, is going to see the sin exposed in their heart. And, and the Bible says that on the best case scenario, when we expose sin, we feel a godly sorrow, and, and sorrow is never comfortable. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. He himself wept and was known as a man of sorrows. And so if we follow him, we, we might expect the same sort of experience. And so it's very possible that someone might be living quite comfortable in their ignorance. They come into Christianity and their level of comfort decreases. Isn't that possible? Does Christianity promise you comfort? Well, we have to say, not necessarily. We could go on, right? The, the, the writer in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that some, by faith, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fire, received back from the dead their young and others were sawn in two, were destitute and afflicted. Does Christianity promise you... The truth is, Christianity promises you precious little about the kinds of circumstances you will live in and about the quality of life that you'll experience. What does Christianity promise you? Here's what that speaker said. And I think he was absolutely right. Christianity promises you peace with God. Christianity promises you a hope for the present. And Christianity promises you a hope for the future. And I think we could do even better. The way it should be thought in your mind is this. Because you are righteous before God, because you are justified, you have peace with God. Because you are righteous in God's sight, because you are justified, you have hope for your present life. And because you are righteous before God, because you are justified, you have a hope for the future. That's what Romans 5 tells you. Let me show you. Because you are justified, you have peace with God. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this may sound like nothing special. After all, who doesn't have peace with God? God's kind, generous, gives good gifts to those who are righteous and unrighteous. 
The rain comes to those. He feeds all indiscriminately. God seems to be pretty generous. What does it mean to have peace with God? Well, remember that all of us are born into this world with a heart that is settled in opposition to God. We are sinners and we are under the power of sin. And so every one of us starts out life at enmity with God. God has something against us because He is just. He sees our guilt and He knows righteously that it deserves punishment. The Bible says we are storing up wrath for ourselves in our rebellion and treason against God. That wrath is real. It's against us. It is right for us to say that apart from Christ, God is against us. So we are at war. Now, this makes all kinds of sense if you think about it. There's a, a great novel. I know it's great because I've read about three chapters of it four or five times, but I keep getting stuck there. The novel is Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, and it's heavy waiting. If you want to read it, I think it's worth it. It's a classic, uh, but be, be warned, it's not for the lighthearted and it's not easy. I know, the first three chapters well, but in, the, in, in that, this character, Raskolnikov, is a guy who's down his luck and needs some money to pay his bills. And the way he's come to getting that money is that he goes to a pawnbroker who lives nearby, an older woman, and he sells his things. But he always leaves dissatisfied thinking he deserved more. I should have gotten more out of this. But he has no bargaining power and so he can't get it. And one day, as he's standing at the door, he realizes, I don't have to take this. And he murders the woman and simply takes her things and her money and keeps his own stuff. He goes to pay his bills. Well, And incidentally, while he's taking her stuff, her sister comes in. And so to clear his, his you know, trail, he has to kill her as well. But he leaves, and he is burdened with an overwhelming sense of his guilt. And then for the rest of the story, because you hear his thoughts, he's the first person experience as you go through this novel. He, he comes into contact on numerous occasions with the investigator, uh, Porfiry Petrovich. Porfiry Petrovich. And he, as he encounters that investigator, every single time you hear his thoughts. That guy's suspicious. That guy is tricky. He's out to entrap me. He's against me. And you see how he hates him. But why does he hate him? Because there's something against them. There's an enmity, and that's always the case. Between law enforcement and criminal, there's always a war. The police cannot be at peace with the criminal. The judge cannot be at peace with the convict. And God cannot be at peace with the sinner until something changes. And you and I will never be at peace with God. We'll never be satisfied with Him. We'll always be suspicious unless you come to terms and find this peace. And it comes because you're righteous before God. You see, God has taken your guilt, the thing that made Him at war with you, and He's put it on Jesus and punished it. And there's nothing left there between you and God. He's clothed you with the righteousness from Christ. You are justified before Him if you trust in Christ. And so He has nothing between you and Him. And now you're like the law-abiding citizen who sees the investigator 
and you smile. You shake His hand. You say, good job. You're at peace. As a sinner who's been covered in righteousness, you're at peace with God. He has nothing against you. And so the war is over. You're at peace. But it's not just that you have peace with God. As great as that is, you have something more. You have hope for this present and broken life. I want you to see this. Verse 2. Through Him, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You have access to God. You have access to grace and help and strength when you need it. Now, again, this may not sound as amazing as it should. So I want you to go back with me into the Old Testament. I want you to remember when God met His people on Mount Sinai. They'd been brought out of Egypt. They'd been broken free from slavery. And God says, in three days, I'm going to come meet with you. Here's what you're to do for three days. You were to fast and pray. You were to consecrate yourselves and bathe. You were to wear clean clothes, which sounds normal to us, but that was probably a big deal. They were to do everything ritually right for three days in preparation for meeting God. And then, when God came, they weren't to touch the mountain that He came to. So they did all that preparation just to look at it. They weren't invited to touch it. They said, if anyone touches the mountain, he'll die. Moses was allowed to go up on behalf of the people. So one man went up and visited with God, and he said, can I see you? And God said, if you do, you'll die. And for the rest of the Old Testament, Old Testament worship highlighted the distance from God. You brought a sacrifice saying, unless I bring something bloody, I can't get close. And no one except once a year and the high priest only was allowed to go into the presence of God in the center of the temple. Everything was about saying, look at the distance. And now Paul says, if you're familiar with this, listen to this, you have access to God. You can walk right up to Him. You can approach God. You can go to God and say, Help! I need grace. And Christ has made a way for you to get the grace you need. Where do you need grace? Where do you have fear, anxiety, weakness, failure? God isn't put off by those things. You see, here's the thing. You and I, here's what happens. I fail. And I remember failing as a kid. I remember seeing you know, a teacher or a parent look at me with that disapproving look and show me the frustrated you know, disapproval. And then I say, that must be what God is like. But you see, you're justified before God. In His sight, you're righteous. Your sin has been paid for and you are righteous in front of Him. And so you don't get the disapproving, frustrated look from God. You get a God who says, you have grace, come to me for help. I'm not frustrated or disappointed or put off by your failure. I help. You have access to God. Come to Him for help. But not just help in this present moment. Listen to this, verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this sounds to me a little on the crazy side. We rejoice in our sufferings? I don't know. 
Now, I want you to be careful. He doesn't say we rejoice because of our sufferings. He's not saying you need to be this weird, self-loathing person who says, oh, I really, this is what I deserve. I ought to feel like this. He's saying we rejoice in our sufferings because we know something. We know because I'm righteous before God. That this is not God exacting punishment from me. This isn't God trying to get me because of what I've done. I'm righteous before God. This this suffering isn't His punishment for His taking a pound of flesh from me. I'm righteous before God, so it has a different meaning. Here's the meaning. Our suffering produces endurance. Now, this is really self-evident. Think about how athletes train. You watch the, the batter as he's preparing to bat, and he puts the weight on the end of his bat. Because he swings it with that weight on it, that when he then goes to the actual time to bat, the bat is lighter and easier to swing. Athletes train in in high altitudes, so they train in thin air so that it will feel better when the air is thick and they have more endurance. We get resistance, and then we endure in resistance. We can endure when there's no resistance. What the Bible is saying here is that if you endure suffering well, you can certainly endure the easier times, the comfortable times well. You gain strength and endurance. But endurance isn't the end. Endurance produces character. Now this too is really evident when you think about it. If you know someone who is really kind in the morning but irritable in the evening, you think of them as a morning person, not a kind person. The person who's kind all the time, whose whose kindness is enduring. Or, If a person was a soldier and they were volunteering for missions, you might think they're courageous. So you see them standing at every mission in the back. And when the fighting gets worse, they're sort of hiding and running. Then you say, well, their courage didn't endure. They're not really courageous. Courage has to endure. And every virtue finds its foundation in endurance. Does it last? Suffering gives you endurance. Endurance produces character. Character leads to hope because God is at work in you to produce a character that reflects Christ. Because your suffering now is not God trying to exact punishment from you, exact a payment for your sins, those have already been paid for. You're justified. What He's doing is He's saying, I've clothed you in righteousness, now I'm going to make you righteous from the inside out. I'm going to complete what I've started. I'm going to crown it. With beauty. He's making you beautiful. And he says, that, that goal will not disappoint you. That hope that, that I'm going to have character will not be disappointing and it means I can endure the suffering now. I have hope that my present afflictions and my present frustrations and my present grief over my experience in the world means something that's worth it. Because God is not trying to get something out of me. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. I'm righteous with Him through justification. So what He's doing is loving. But let me prove it. After He says, you're going to get character, your hope won't disappoint you and won't put you to shame because God's love is poured into your heart. That's what He's doing through the suffering. He's training you to trust and lean on and drink deeply from the love of God. But you say, wait, 
I feel like my suffering and my disappointments show me that God doesn't love me that much. That's when I have my biggest questions about His love. I'm, does God really love me? I feel so bad. Here's what Paul says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. You know, thought like this. If I'm standing next to a person and there's a threat in his life, I may be thinking, man, he's good for the community. He's good for society. He's a good man. Life here would be better and I'm willing to put my life in the way to save him. But if he's a rascal, if he's a troublemaker, I hope he'll save me. I'm not going to risk it. That, that's sort of the idea. If someone might be willing to say, I'll save a good person, but to the person who's, who's criminal, I think he deserves it. But God demonstrates, shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while you were a sinner, while you were destructive, while you were opposed to God, Christ died for you. Here's what this means. You're righteous before God through Christ's death. God isn't trying to get a payment from you. In fact, you look at your circumstances, your suffering, your afflictions by looking through the cross. I tend to want to say, God, if you love me, why does it hurt so much? And I say, oh, okay. I don't understand the hurting, but I understand the cross. I know what the cross means. The cross means you love me. The cross means Jesus suffered with me and for me, and it means you love me. And if I can understand that, then I can start to look at this suffering and say, you must love me. This must mean something, even if I can't see it. You see, you have a hope that all of the heartache, all of the disappointment, all of the frustration all of the pain that you're going through right now is brought to you from the hand of a God who loves you and He proved it. His Son came to die for you. And, and, and so you cling to that cross and say, All right, that means my present life means something, but it also means my future is really secure. You have a hope for the future. I'll be real fast. Look what he says in verse um, 10. Uh, Actually, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, since we are righteous before Him now, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Remember the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness? And we're all going to stand before God with no excuse. I don't have any reason to say I can defend myself, God. I'm completely guilty and I deserve what you give. That's the only thing we could say. But you see, if you're righteous before God because of Jesus, you'll be saved from that wrath. You won't experience it. That wrath has been diverted. It's been sent on Jesus and there's nothing left to spend. You're saved from the wrath of God. And you're saved to... Look at verse 2. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Instead of getting the wrath of God that you deserve, 
because you are righteous in God's sight, you get to taste His glory. You get to stand in the scene we read from Roman, or Revelation chapter 4 to see the elders bow down and worship, to see the greatness of God, to engage and enjoy His glory. You deserve His wrath, but you're safe from it. You're righteous before Him. And you can, you're fit to stand in front of Him. There's a scene also in Revelation where John sees the glory of Jesus and when he sees it, he sees what Moses wasn't allowed to see. He looks on the glory of Jesus, his face shining like the sun, and he is undone at the core of his soul. He falls on his face as though dead. And Jesus walks to him and puts his hand on him and he says, Don't be afraid, John. And he says the same to you. Though you would stand in front of God with no voice, with nothing to say, terrified of His wrath, God comes and says, I've made you righteous. I've justified you. He puts His hand on you and He says, I died for you. Don't be afraid. You've got peace with God. You have hope that the stuff you're going through right now matters. It matters intensely. And it's going to make you beautiful because God is doing it. And He loves you. And you have hope for the future because you are righteous with God. You'll get to taste and enjoy and see and experience His glory. And it will be worth it. I want you to pretend for a second that you got special magic tickets to Disney World. Golden tickets. And they entitled you to the back scenes, you know, to see the stuff that goes on in the background, to get to interact with the characters and the actors. It got you to skip all the lines. I mean, this is, it gets you every benefit you could possibly imagine at Disney World. Now, pretend that you've got those tickets and you're standing in line anyway. And your kids are grabbing at your shirt. Come on! We don't have to do this. Let's go see the stuff. Let's get to the front Let's take hold of our blessings. Dear Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, look how good you have it. You have peace with God. Enjoy it. Live in it. Dwell in it. Thank God for it. And stop feeling like you have to make up for something you have done. If you are trusting in Christ, you have hope for the present. You can look at this stuff and say, I don't understand but I know the cross and I know God loves me and I know what He's doing. And you can look at your circumstances and know God is producing character that will delight you. Hope in the present. And you can, because you are righteous before God, you can anticipate glory, glory, beauty, joy that is inexpressible. Those are yours. You've got the ticket. Enjoy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us faith in this salvation, faith in Christ, and to know we are justified and let us enjoy the blessings of justification, to have peace with you and hope in the present and in the future. We pray that you would fill us with this, that our souls would be at peace with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.